So welcome to What the Fish. Today we'll be doing a second uh, episode discussing the value of collections, focusing more on the specimens themselves rather than specimen data. So I'm Leo Smith, a curator in fishes. I'm Matt Davis, a postdoc in fishes. And I'm Pete McEvick, a curator of dinosaurs and chairs of the geology department at the Field Museum. All right, so what did you think of that dinosaur that just came out, the new oldest dinosaur? Yeah, I think they're probably right. I mean, I mean that's a good collection start. I mean, that was sort of something that was kicking around in the collections of the British Museum. For and so it, it ends up being probably like the closest, either the most primitive dinosaur or something like that, or the closest living relative to dinosaurs, or somewhere in that vicinity? The closest extinct relative to dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'm used to my... Uh... <laughs> the ontological world. Yeah, no. So, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, very dinosaur-like. Whether it constitutes sort of the, the first dinosaur in the sense that it falls within the uh, within the diversity of, of Sauriscian and Ornithischian dinosaurs, or is immediately outside that on, on sort of a, a tree of dinosaur relationships, uh, it falls into that zone. It's not sufficiently complete to, to fully resolve uh, whether it's inside or right outside that node on the cladogram, but um, for sort of all extents and purposes, whether it's the immediate sister group or inside, it gives us uh, sort of a nice datum and time and place for where dinosaurs originated and when. <laughs> so I, one of the things that when I was thinking about this topic, one of the things that I was interested in is... I didn't grow up as a dinosaur person, so I didn't really know. But it seemed like the feathered dinosaur stuff was all relatively recent. And then once someone pointed this out or highlighted it or however it all started, we started finding more and more evidence in fossils we already knew about. Is that sort of my take on it? Am I wrong? Uh, there's some evidence of that. Uh, the number of discoveries of, of feathers and outside of the, the new deposits, which all, all are in China, um, is fairly small. There's a few number of things that have been revised. Uh, most recently, there was an article in Science with a, a uh, ornithomimid specimen that was collected in 1995. Um, I actually did a fair amount of work on that specimen. It has some marks on it, uh, sort of these charcoal-like stains on it that have now been reinterpreted as, as uh, the attachments for... Uh, for the, the secondaries that uh, lie along the, uh, the arm of, of birds and, and feathered dinosaurs. Um, so it was more about the actual quality of the specimens in yeah, China that it made. Yeah. Right, so it was relatively recent. I'm not crazy about that. Yeah, so the discovery <laughs> of feathered dinosaurs really goes back to 1996. And, okay. and so it, we're talking about the last 15 years. All of this stuff has come out. And uh, it's really all still coming out of one area. Um, with a few other finds elsewhere. So there have been a few things with, with filaments found in other deposits, um, but it's it's primarily still that one area that's producing all the stuff. So when we figure out that other groups have feathers, it's sort of inferred on the phylogeny or something? So if groups that aren't from China, let's say, we have to basically just infer that, well, these are in the group yeah. that all these Chinese ones are in, so we're yeah. just going to now have to assume, you know, it's, easy, it's safer to assume that they still have feathers than... Yeah, pretty much the same way I mean, for... You know, Lucy had uh, had hair, because we do and chimps do, and there's no reason to think that she wouldn't, but uh, in, in similar vein, you sort of infer that these things had some level of plumage. Um, obviously, the degree and the variation there 
becomes much harder to estimate once sure. you're referring it. But the basic presence of plumage is, is pretty pretty solid. Right. I mean, I think that gets into one of the strengths of collections. So one of the things that we often do uh, in evolutionary biology, and I think that the three of us do more or focus on more than some other researchers, is that when we take these phylogenies, so we had the one podcast where we talked about how we make a tree of organisms, we can then take that tree of organisms and make predictions about the characteristics of animals. So in general, the way this works is that you make you get the tree, whether that tree is made from genetic data or morphological data or a combination of the, of the two. We started with, uh, that. this was worked on based on the evolution of venom and venomous fishes. So when we started working on this project, there were all the sort of medical accounts and all sort of stories about venomous fish said there were 200 species. Any ichthyologist that knew anything about anything knew that that number was going to be totally wrong because there's four or 500 species of scorpion fishes and lion fishes, and there's no reason to suspect they're not all venomous. But we didn't really know. No one had ever looked at this from an evolutionary perspective. And so what we did was we made a giant molecular tree, DNA-based tree. And the reason we used DNA was it was just easier to sample across tens of thousands of fish with genetic data that, you know, where you're not trying to compare a seahorse to a tuna, you're, you know, you can, you're just comparing A's and C's and T's to other A's and C's and T's. And from that, we were able to make this hypothesis of how these are related. And then we could take the characteristics that we're interested in. In this case, it was ve- presence of venom or at least a venom gland. And we could put that onto the tips of the tree that we knew were there were venomous animals. And then we could treat all the other ones as absent or missing, whether we knew had that information. And then from that, you could then what we call optimize or map this character, this trait onto the tree, just like you could imagine a, you know, a, you know, with flowers, you could, you know, among flowering plants, there's going to be a group that have rose petals or what, you know, some aspect of that we can all kind of relate to or hair in mammals or something. And in this case, we were doing venom. And so from that, we made a prediction of where venom evolved based on the knowns and unknowns. And then we went back and we actually, you know, we actually, I actually had submitted the paper at that point with just this prediction based on the phylogeny and the optimization of these characters. And the editor um, wrote back and had this really, you know, pointed point was like, you've all you've done is made a prediction. You haven't tested the prediction. And he suggested that we actually go in and look at the presence of venom itself, which would be complicated. You know, we'd have to go catch all these animals live. And so we wrote back and said, you know, a friend of mine, Julian Fivevich, suggested that I offer instead that he go in and look at, that I look at the anatomy of the stuff, which I'm, as soon as he said it, I, it was like so obvious, but, you know, it's just one of these things you don't really think about what you're doing. And so I wrote back to the editor, thought that was totally fine, that we, if we could show the presence of venom glands, we would actually be able to um, show not only the what was venomous and what wasn't venomous, but it also highlighted, and he was very excited about it, that this highlighting the value of natural history collections from this perspective that this data, this source was right there, you know, just around the corner from my office and went down, dissected, you know, a couple hundred fish. It took, you know, just a few days actually to like go in and do the dissections on these. And what we were able to do is use that information to test the, the predictions that we had from the molecular data and then go in and actually sort of identify where venom evolved across the tree of life. And that, had dramatic implications for how, where venom evolved, how many fishes were venomous. So it took it from that 200 number of medical records to, you know, several thousand, but it also highlighted the, this power of prediction. And so then it made me realize that now that we did this, the same would be true of the venoms themselves. If it turned out that the venoms had medicinal benefits, 
I could make predictions based on the few data that were available on the on fish venoms and start targeting species that could be, you know, whether their venoms would be more dangerous or less dangerous. What we could then do is then really, really efficiently sample through all of the venomous fishes to see what the venoms were like. And then rather than manipulate the venoms, if there was something that was, you know, useful for uh, potential treatment of drugs or cosmetic purposes, we could then see, rather than manipulate lab, we can see if nature had actually varied it, because obviously all these taxa would have, or all these species would have different variants of the same kind of venom. And this kind of predictive modeling is one of the strengths of comparative biology, and it highlights how all these different traits, whether it's the presence of feathers or whether it's um, venoms or venom genes themselves, how valuable having the comparative material on hand is. Yeah, that's an interesting point in terms of um, studying the tree of life. We use specimen data for that kind of information all the time, as Leo was saying, to make predictions. And for example, I predominantly work on deep sea groups and the Field Museum has a really great collection of deep sea fishes. And there's a number of things where the groups that I work on where we hypothesize a tree of relationships for specific types of deep sea groups, but we might be interested in looking at uh, how different um, structures have evolved in the deep sea and how many times that they've evolved more than once because they may or may not have um, selective pressures in that environment that are pushing things to evolve in certain directions, such as uh, it's dark, so you may have the evolution of either enlarged eyes to see bioluminescent organisms or a total reduction in eyes, and we can study those, you know, the evolution of those particular features in these groups, and then we can go back to the specimens and, and examine the morphology and look to see, like, if the eye structures are um, morphologically different. That all, it's, it's kind of the same idea of making predictions on the number of times a particular feature may or may not have evolved, and we can even then go back and look at the anatomy more closely and and identify whether or not we see that same signal there too, that maybe the morphological structures of the eye um, are, say, are really different from one another in, in, in different ways, or the reduction of eyes uh, has occurred completely differently across multiple different groups. Even though there is a reduction in the function, the actual morphological structure of the eye is different. Um, and these are the kinds of things that we can do, and uh, the kinds of things people in this building are doing uh, all the time with lots of different groups. Right, and it highlights how... Once you have that phylogeny, how important is that you could go back and sort of tease apart the things? I mean, like, I think people could relate to something like loss of limbs in lizards, like millions of different groups of lost limbs. And Yeah, to the point that sometimes people get confused. They'll pick up a limbless lizard, not even realizing that there is such a thing, and think it's a snake when it's actually a lizard. And if you, but my hunch is that in most of the groups, when you start doing that, what's left of the pelvic girdle or pectoral girdle or other parts of the body, so the arms and legs pieces or the, you know, or just like in a whale or something where they're kind of modified so strangely, you can actually start to see that things did evolve differently or the, the way the stuff is lost or other aspects will be different in the different groups. Like, you know, it would be hard to tell that apart without the sort of independent phylogeny rather than just on the anatomy, but the connection between the two and the reliance on going back and being able to look at the specimens and have access to them is critical for that. You know, we've been talking about building these trees. It's probably worth noting too that like all of that data that we use to build the trees are data that came from specimens. They came from, um, they might not necessarily be specimens from the field museum, but they're specimens from other institutions that we were able to get on loan, uh, just like specimens at the field museum are loaned out. And some of them are from the fields that we've collected ourselves. 
Um, so even the information that goes into building the tree in the first place is coming from this kind of specimen data, whether it's, you know, tissues uh, or whole specimens. But No, and it's like you have the, you know, this new species that you're describing where one person got a specimen from here and one other person was kind of looking at specimen somewhere else. And then somehow as a group, even though all the different people could independently sort of want to use their own collections and describe this new species all on their own. It's actually pretty remarkable. We all sort of talk, we communicate and because of the collection databases, we can see that other places have them and you were able to contact some of these other. Yeah. You can, you can get a group of people to work together to solve these kinds of like mysteries these like biodiversity mysteries that otherwise would go unknown. Um, And that's one way we can identify new species. Right. And then that, you know, and what it highlights just how different it is now because of all these databases than it was, you know, 200 years ago. So there's a, there's a remarkable number of times, you know, in the 1800s where there was a researcher in uh, the Netherlands, let's say, and in Japan where they end up describing the same fish because they can't communicate. Not, I mean, they obviously had a language barrier and all sorts of other barriers that we just are a lot less now. But I mean, at the same time, because of these collection databases, people communicate. So science doesn't get confused. It's really confusing when two people describe the same fish at more or less the same time, or one of them's in Dutch and one of them's in Japanese. And it takes a long time before the scientific community can like process all that, figure yeah, out that they are the same who did it first and figure out, cause that it affects what its name forever is. And it's, you know, this is just a simple case of it, but it's like, it is remarkable how many cases of that there are that are just sort of don't happen anymore because of the collection databases. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of anyone. It doesn't, it, it certainly doesn't happen very regularly. I think it probably still does, but it's not, and it's probably it's not the same. It's probably but, a lot different in insects or something where there's just so many more to deal with, but than it is, I mean, fishes are about as hard as vertebrate or easily as, as hard as vertebrate gets. But, um, that pales in comparison to some of the invertebrate groups. Yeah. And in general, biologists now are pretty well connected. Like if, if you're working on a group of organisms in a certain area, you might know all the other people working in that area and you could always contact them and be like, Oh, I found this, this might be a new species. And they'll be like, you know, Oh yeah. You know, it could be something that somebody else was thinking of describing and they just hadn't gotten around to it yet because everything takes time. No, Um, there's a good example of that. Now that you mention it is, uh, we were we had I'd done some a lot of work in with Madagascar fishes and I've gone collecting in Madagascar, and we found a toadfish there and we knew that there was a record of a toadfish there but no one had described it or any of this and so but you know so the person I was working with uh, was more of a Madagascar expert and so we contacted sort of one of the toadfish experts and he was like oh I'm actually describing what I think is the same fish from Reunion so which is a volcanic island near. Um, Madagascar, which is a continental island, you know, basically a granitic island. And it turned out that the, the, all these islands had a, the same, despite the fact that there was a very restricted distribution of the toadfishes within Madagascar, they were actually on neighboring islands as well. And we were able to publish the work together. We didn't, you know, no, neither one of us was angry about the other one at all. It was just very collegial. He was actually very generous with me. I was a young student and he could have just taken the material and said thanks but he uh, offered me co-authorship and um you know and it was it was it was sort of heartwarming or something or helpful for a young kid yeah oh, that's good so you are always you're actively collecting still in antarctica like collecting new like fossil material and 
and looking at new biodiversity that we hadn't known about before. Yeah, we continue to collect um, around the world. Um, obviously, um, the historic nature of the collections here is such that uh, when we started back in 1894, uh, as a museum, you could go anywhere and pretty much collect anything you wanted. Um, that's changed, uh, of course, uh, as, as uh, laws and, and permitting has evolved across the world. We live with new, new rules. Many of the countries where you could freely collect before, of course, now have patrimony laws, and so you can collaborate with their scientists, but they end up retaining uh, some or all of the fossil material. Um, but we do continue to build our collections, both with uh, material from places like Antarctica, but also a lot of new material from uh, North America. We have two new uh, theropod dinosaurs that we're working on from Utah, and uh, as well as the Antarctic material. So we are trying to grow our collections. Um, you know, dinosaurs, you're collecting a lot fewer specimens than uh, with fish. It takes a lot <laughs> longer for them to actually... Preparation's a little bit longer, too. I don't yeah, know, to throw them so, in a jar <laughs> with a couple different chemicals. So, you know, if I, I wouldn't be looking for a venom gland, but if I'm looking for a particular uh, trait similar to that, I, it might take my preparator a few days or even weeks to, to actually answer the question for me. But in principle, it's the same, same process. Um, it's very important uh, when, we, when we study evolution um, that uh, we are able to go back to reinterpret uh, anatomical structures um, or to resample DNA um, and verify previous findings. I mean, it's a basic cornerstone of any science that you have re re reproducibility, and uh, the collections allow that. That simply is is the basic thing that allows us to go back and check uh, whether this uh, you know sequence of DNA or this character that's coded for a taxon is indeed correct. Um, and you can do that when you have. Um, collections, when you have types, when things are cataloged. But of course, this comes with a huge um, set of responsibilities for an institution like ours. I mean, we don't just uh, act as the repository for the uh, scientific uh, questions that we here, the three of us and our colleagues in the building work on. Uh, we do this for essentially a global community of scientists, and we house 25 million specimens. So. Um, this is a tremendous uh, responsibility that, uh, that this institution and institutions like it carry with global impact. Um, and uh, we, of course, have to loan specimens, and they're requested by researchers elsewhere uh, for these purposes. And so uh, many discoveries are made, not necessarily in our building, but on, on our specimens by researchers around the world. Right, it's critical. I mean, everyone can understand the analogy that we use frequently of the library loaning things out, but it's it's much more complicated than that because, like in this case, it's like every single thing is the only copy of a manuscript. It's like a pre Gutenberg yeah. press world where every specimen is different. You know, maybe there are a lot of zebrafish or whatever out there, but like each one could be. You know, you have to be able to. A, a statement is made on individual specimens in the scientific record. We call out catalog numbers and we have to be able to re basically go back and get that exact same specimen. There's probably fewer dinosaurs, so maybe it's slightly... That might be You might be able to re-figure out which sort of one was actually examined for something, but in the fish world, if we have 20,000 Natropus, 
we'll never go back and find the specimen that someone looked at unless it's cataloged. And or then, if somebody specifically ID'd it or tagged it, like this is the one I took measurements of. Sure, but it would be almost impossible to yeah. even look through 20,000 specimens. No, it's not as likely. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's amazing how hard that is to go back and keep track of everything and then update it as we go from just labels on jars into electronic databases and then not only the specimen information on the databases just so you can find it but it's also sort of in the library equivalent like the publisher you know in this case it's collection localities and things like that and in the case of dinosaurs and things i imagine you guys have the added burden that you don't necessarily want any person to be able to find the collection locality necessarily like in the fish world we don't worry too much about that i know turtles and things like that they worry about it and I imagine dinosaurs is worse. Yeah, I or mean, we, any bird paleo, I suppose. We of course keep very accurate data on on, uh, on our fossil localities, but um, in general, we don't put those in in the primary literature. Those are given out at request uh, when when requested by our colleagues in the field or, or other experts who have a reasonable reason to have that kind of information. Um, it's, it's data that, that is sensitive. There's obviously a, a black market fossil trade. and Pretty serious give, one. Pretty serious one. And, and if you give out that kind of data, you're asking for trouble. So as a policy, we, we keep the data on file and uh, we will give it out upon request by appropriate persons. Yeah, no, that's a, it's an interesting wrinkle on all of this. Like we have this desire to be share as much of this stuff as possible because the more we can share, the more it can be used. So, you know, that's why the last podcast we talked about sharing for fishes, the uh, geographic information to services like GBIF and things like that. Um, but at the same time, dinosaurs or other paleontological things, um, it's not like you can, you know, there's a, it's a fundamentally for looking at sort of climate change or something like that, the location matters, but you have to remember that the continents have been shifting. And I mean, there's a million different things. And I assume you guys could even potentially get maybe not out of dinosaurs, but out of other things that geology has, you know, sort of information on that might even be able to allow you to predict what the environment was like at those times, you know, isotope things that you could. Yeah. there. I mean, depends on the, the scale of study, but you, you can often do a lot with just coarser data if you just know the rough area you're in. Um, so you don't have to have absolute GPS coordinates. You just need sure. to know, for example, canyon state and what rock unit and what time horizon. You can do a lot with that. How easy is it to figure out the time horizon? Can Do you guys, because I know that they use invert fossils to try and help figure out what places are. Yeah. So. It depends where you are. You can use uh, any combination of radiometric dates, um, which will be often not taken right at a fossil site. Uh, but at more prolific sites, people do have radiometric dates. Um, combined with stratigraphy, combined with index fossils, uh, be they invertebrate or pollen, or um, any number of uh, other indicators. Magnetostratigraphy is another way you can do it. Um, so some of those depends on, on the nature of the sediment uh, that, you're work, that you're working with. So there are cases where the presence of certain species, whether it's pollen or inverts, is actually sort of informing the geology, not just the animals or plants. Okay, or inform the habitat too, right? Because yeah, no. people use the invertebrates to identify whether it's freshwater, marine, or... Yeah, um, so you, you can get a lot of environmental and temporal data from just looking at, at the general flora and fauna of... of a rock unit that you're working with. Um, 
sometimes you get lucky and you'll actually get a nice uh, assault intrusion or something like that that gives you a radiometric date either immediately above or below your fossil layer, and then you're in great luck. But that's the exception rather than the rule. So mostly you're left sort of tying some combination of, of index fossils, be they pollen or invertebrate, to a radiometric date somewhere else. And, and so it becomes a bit of a sort of a, a detective work of, of tying these things together. And that's why stratigraphy and, and, and dates and ages are, are constantly revised um, and improved over time. In a place like Antarctica, is that that much harder, or is it actually because of the formation somehow it doesn't really matter that it's sort of harder, much harder to work there than other it, places? It hasn't really uh, made a difference for us. Um, we've actually gotten much more uh, precision on the dates for the uh, unit we work in there. So before we had it sort of uh, somewhere between 200 and, and 180 million years ago, and gotten it close much closer down to about 195 uh, give or take a million years um, and this is thanks to radiometric dates that uh, were taken uh, from nearby um, there was a sample taken not far from the quarry the dinosaur quarry uh, itself there that um, we uh, well another team but that was there at the same time extracted zircons from these are little crystals they're essentially formed um, in the Earth's magma, and they preserve the radiometric signature at the time of formation. Um, and so you can measure sort of the age distribution of those and assume that uh, the youngest among those zircons are going to uh, give you an approximate age of where you're from. So these are these are not the sort of cubic zirconia you'd see <laughs> at the jeweler's store, but these are tiny, tiny crystals that are spewed out by volcanoes. Is that the same thing they used in that cichlid, the lumbar formation or whatever? Yeah, and okay. it's the same thing we used in our our um, Mahangi, the Tanzania fossil that I described too. We talked about earlier the collections is like an idea, kind of like a library, but obviously some books you can or can't send out, and it's important for people to actually come here to see specific things. Like we can send out small fishes, but I... I don't actually know, but how often do you loan out, say, a large dinosaur? Or how important is it that people have access to be able to come here to visit the collections for that kind of material? Yeah, the the problem with fossils often becomes one of, of fragility and, and simply bulk, either size and weight um, considerations. So, of course, um, something like an entire dinosaur skeleton you just can't ship. It's it's unmanageable uh, and unfeasible both financially and practically to do that. Um, and it's almost guaranteed to uh, endanger the safety of the specimen. So in those cases, uh, people mostly come here. Now, if you're looking, for example, at a collection of m mammalian teeth, uh, these things are much, much smaller, much easier to pack up so they can be shipped. So really runs the range. We will, we will often send uh, material if it's feasible, um, but if the uh, considerations of safety and just the shipping costs become high, we'll actually ask people to come here. Um, How lenient are you guys with any of your material to collections that don't actually like have collection managers? So one of the things we've talked about in zoology is we might stop loaning specimens to institutions where there's not a second person just in case the researcher were to pass away or something like that so that they don't, you know, so that... To maintain the quality may of the collection or the specimen in, right. like in another yours institution. Are, yours are rarer than ours. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that the, my, all we the fishes are valuable, but we yours We don't are, have an official policy on, on loaning to 
institutions without collection management. So we do, for example, loan to university researchers. Um, but we do expect them to keep, you know, things properly labeled and identified. Um, there are, of course, horror stories as in any other field where someone has loaned uh, all of Claydex from around the world and then sort of distributed them around his office and misplaced the labels and so on. Because he knew best or um, she knew best. Yeah. And uh, so those, those have led to sort of uh, horror stories that collection managers share over beers at uh, SVP meetings where, you know, they all had to come and sort of go through all this material after X was deceased and try and figure out what might be theirs. Um, Usually we're pretty good at, at labeling specimens, at least with a number directly on the specimens. And so if it has a, you know, an institutional prefix and a number, that at least gets you a good part of the way. Um, so that's uh, usually safe. Um, and then the other factors, of course, fossils are just uh, fewer in number, at least vertebrate fossils. So the, the volume of things someone might have to go through uh, should should a researcher with many loans uh, unfortunately pass away is, is probably significantly smaller. But there are, there are a couple of horror stories out there. Sure. And we, we try to be uh, conscientious about that when we nope. loan things. It's really tricky. I mean, it's a, it's the, it's the only decision that's ever hard. It's like that person that's in between things where you want to make sure they can use it and they have the other comparative material because they've been loaned by other places and you don't want to be difficult, but we do have this responsibility to maintain the collection. Yeah. Well, and then the other question we have, which I think you have less of, is, is material on exhibit. So we actually have quite a few skeletons on exhibit, and those can be holotypes or reference specimens that people need to look at. So we have that uh, added sort of uh, responsibility of, of ensuring that people can access those um, in a safe manner uh, that also doesn't invite uh, museum visitors to come join them in the process. So... <laughs> For example, uh, the, the skull of Sue is in a, in a glass case on uh, a balcony overlooking the main hall at the museum here. But you can actually take, take the front off and roll the skull out for examination. Um, but it involves cordoning off the area. Um, and it, it attracts quite a few visitors, and invariably you'll hear some uh, five-year-old asking their mom, Mommy, why can that man look at that skull and not me? So, you know... Um, <laughs> But, but th that's just part of our responsibility as a museum. Um, every specimen here, whether it's on exhibit or not, is, is part of the scientific collections and is uh, accessible for scientists. Um, we've made it, in the case of, for example, Sue, we've made it easier by, um, by actually having a, a very high fidelity research-grade cast of every bone. So people can look at that behind the scenes rather than endangering their life getting on a ladder in Stanley Field Hall and... Uh, but I did see that Bill Simpson was out there, the collection manager was out there cleaning it the other day. Oh, yeah. We dust, <laughs> we dust Sue regularly. I mean, you know, it's one of the most photographed objects in the museum. You wouldn't want it to be dusty all the time. So. Yeah, no, it's, I just, it was funny seeing him out there. I was like, what the? That is the biggest <laughs> feather duster I've ever seen. <laughs> so, but that's part of maintaining it, I suppose. Yeah, it is. So is the dinosaur that's outside that I probably should know the name of, but don't? Cause I, <laughs> the Brachiosaurus? So that is... That's, I assume, is a cast. Yeah, the Brachiosaurus uh, that's mounted out on the northwest terrace of the museum is, is a cast. And it's really a composite of the holotype of Brachiosaurus altithorax, which was um, discovered by the first 
paleontology curator here at the museum, Elmer Riggs, in 1904. And um, so it's the combination of that skeleton, which really comprised parts of the limbs and, and the spine, and then filled in with material from a very closely related animal, um, which was found in, in Africa by German expeditions. Um, and the cast out there is made of some sort of fiberglass reinforced um, material that can withstand the, the uh, climate here in Chicago. And then there's another cast that used to be on the museum floor. Oh, okay, that's is, what I was going to ask. So that's, where, that's where I was going with this. <laughs> yeah. So there's a cast somewhere down in the collections resource center. No, no it's the, an O'Hare. Oh, it's the one that's at the... Yeah, at terminal, the, uh, terminal one at, at O'Hare. Oh, wow. Tennessee. So that's the one that was in the hall before Sue. Yeah. And if you go watch, like, the relic, the one that you yeah. see. Yeah, they're in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. If you want to agree, disagree, or want to ask what the fish... Tweet us your question or send us a topic suggestion at fm underscore what the fish. So if you're enjoying our podcast, you can also find us on iTunes. And if you're enjoying it and you are on iTunes, please uh, rate and give us a comment. And for this week, so long and thanks for all the fish. Mm-hmm.